it's time for school days. Hope for moms and dads of school-aged kids. I tell parents, you're like a training wheel on a bike. Your job isn't to make the bike move. Your job is to keep the bike upright. Those of us who are the true educators, we really want to be given the opportunity to educate the whole child. We can get free college degrees based on all of the opportunities that are out here and available to our students. Oftentimes, as parents, I think we want to protect our kids, but I think one of the greatest gifts we can give them is allowing them to experience adversity. Yeah. Here's your host, Danita Bailey. Well, welcome to School Days, Help for Moms and Dads of School-Aged Kids. I'm Danita Bailey. Today on School Days, we will talk about helping students who are struggling to read. As I researched this topic, I was shocked by the statistics, and I think you might be too. The highest percentage of Americans, 36% of Americans, have level three literacy, which means that they only read and write at a sixth to eighth grade level. The second highest percentage of Americans, 34%, have level three literacy, which means that they can only write at a basic or fourth to fifth grade level. This means that the majority of people in the U.S. don't read very well, and many are functionally illiterate. In 2013, the Program for the International Assessment of Adult Competencies dropped the top level, level five, because there were no longer enough people who could read at at least an 11th grade level to count. The impact of low literacy is not only personally limiting to the success and achievement of many Americans, but it's also very costly to our society. Low literacy rates cost an excess of $230 billion a year in healthcare costs because adults have difficulty understanding and using health information. Low literacy also costs the U.S. at least $225 billion each year in non-productivity in the workplace, crime, and loss of tax revenue due to unemployment. To say the very least, helping students who struggle to read is not an insignificant problem for any of us. So in today's episode, we will hear from an expert who will share with us about why some students struggle to become proficient readers, and what can be done to help them. But before we go any further, let me just say, it does take a village. If you hear a great parenting tip or nugget of advice, share it with your parent friends. Facebook it, Instagram it, tweet it, link it in, and add the hashtag SchoolDaysShow and hashtag IamSchoolDaysed. And also, if you want to be a part of the show, we'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, give us a call at 214-444-5575. Or if you're live with us on Facebook, you can drop us a question there. Without any further ado, let's let our KidCaster introduce today's guest. This week, our KidCaster is ninth grade student Riley Gibson, and she's the granddaughter of our guest today. Mrs. Arms holds a bachelor's degree in both general and special education and a master's degree in special education with certification in the areas of educational diagnostician and mid-management. She has 18 years experience in K-12 education as a general and special education teacher and educational diagnostician, specializing in working with students with learning disabilities and behavioral issues. Mrs. Arms currently is a National Education Consultant for Scientific Learning Corporation. In the past 19 years, she has had varied roles in the company, including Education Consultant and Account Consultant, serving as a liaison between sales and schools across the United States. 
Welcome to school days, Mimi. <laughs> you gotta love it. You're so cute. You did such a great job. Well, thank you so much for coming. Corey and I are good friends. We go to the same church and she is just so well informed and she's just a fabulous lady. So I'm just so glad you're here today. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. All right. Well, so let's just jump right in. So tell us what is Scientific Learning Corporation and you guys do fast for, is it for word or forward? People say it both ways. Okay. So it, it, Either one is acceptable. We will let you say it either way. Scientific learning was developed many years ago, over 20 years ago, by four neuroscientists. And their focus was developing fast forward or fast forward. And, and that is a program that helps students build reading and language skills, along with the cognitive skills that support the building of reading and language. So it's really about helping shore up kids, learning skills, developing them into good, strong readers and uh, successful at school. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So strategies for teaching reading have really changed over the years. We were just talking about this before we got started. So what are the different approaches that have been used and why have they evolved so? Well, I would say right now the, the, Biggest discussion and, and probably always has been phonics or cueing. And they've had different names. The programs have had different names over the years. And, and the pendulum has swung back and forth over the years between the two different approaches. Um, I'm a phonics person. So Me I too. believe that it's really important to get kids to understand that letters make sounds. Mm -hmm. And those sounds make up the words that we use. And that's how you read and how you decode and build good reading skills. It's foundational. The flip side of that is the cueing system. And in that, they, they may talk a little bit about phonics now, but that's really not the focus. They use the context of the sentence, the pictures, things like that to help kids kind of use the cues around the words to help them figure out what those words are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I was telling you, I noticed that with uh, my daughter, who's uh, a first grader, that she would read, she'd be reading a book. And before she would attempt the sentence, she would look at the picture to see what it is that she was supposed to be getting. And um, I did not like that. <laughs> Because I'm I'm hooked on phonics. <laughs> it worked for me. And I just didn't understand why they, it, and I didn't realize that's the way she was being taught. I didn't know that was a thing. I just um, thought that that was just something she had figured out that was, was helpful. But I would steer her toward, no, sound out the word. You know what these word, these letters sound like. Try it, you know? Yeah. And I think the the problem with English I would say is that sometimes um, sounding it out doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work. Right. Uh, because English is pretty much a conv convoluted language in my estimate. And uh, so you take the word cat, that's pretty straightforward, c-at. And so you can blend that to be cat. Take the word w-a-s, and if you sound it out by the phonics coding, it should be was. Mm -hmm. But it's was. Mm -hmm. Doesn't make any sense. So kids have to figure out those sight words too. Mm -hmm. But phonics still is helpful in getting them 
on the right road to that word. Mm -hmm. So there are some words kids have to memorize, and those are what we call sight words. That's pretty typical. Um, But if you're really going to be a strong reader, you've got to be able to decode and break those words down. Mm -hmm. And then then you build automaticity through the practice. Mm -hmm. That's the essential piece is that practice. Mm -hmm. So it becomes automatic, and I don't have to think about every single word that I read. Yeah. I can remember, though, um, being told to look at the context clues in a sentence. Um, And I think that that makes sense. But I I did not like the look at the picture (laughs) and see what the pictures are saying before you read the words. Yeah. And I think that I think some teachers use it to help kids get kind of a a strategy when they come to a word they can't decode Mm -hmm. to help them as a support. Um, But I'm with you. I want them to attack those words first. Yeah. So tell me, other than having a learning disorder, and, you know, we we talked a lot about that a couple of episodes, if you have a concern about that um, and want to know more. But what are some of the reasons why students don't become proficient readers? Well, there's there's several different things. Um, There can be students who maybe when they were younger had lots of ear infections Mm. and so when when they're babies and toddlers those tubes in the ears don't angle down toward the throat like they do with adults it's straight across so that fluid stays in the ear when a child has an ear infection or a bad cold even so you think if a child has three four ear infections in a year, those that fluid can stay in up to 10 weeks. And so that could be 30 to 40 weeks out of 52 that they've got this muffled sound when we're be, when they're being talked to, when we're saying things to them. Mm-hmm. And if you've ever had a bad cold or your ears are stopped up, you know how frustrating it is. You want to turn the TV up louder. You keep asking people to repeat things. And so you can imagine for a a little one, they don't know that it's not right. Mm-hmm. And so they just accept it. And so their the sound perception can become distorted. Those, those phonemic pathways in the brain don't always develop clearly because of that fluid and that distortion when they're trying to build those sounds in the brain. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. Another thing can be that nobody talks to them very much. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so important wow. in those early years that we talk to our infants and toddlers. And I'm not talking about putting them in front of some cute little TV show or on an iPad or phone. Um, that's not the same. We learn through human interaction. And if you think about when you talk to a baby, they totally lock into your face and they get engaged and that's how they learn sound. They've mm-hmm. done research on it. They know that that's the most effective method. So the importance of talking and building a language foundation is huge mm-hmm. uh, because it not only builds the phonemes, the sounds with the language in their brains, but it gives them a knowledge base. I remember my, when my son was a baby, I I was used to being t- in a classroom teaching and around other people, and it was just him and me. And so as much to entertain myself as him, I talked to him all the time. You know, I would talk to him, we're washing dishes, I'm putting the soap in the water, you know, just on and on. And um, he became very strong at language, a very good reader, to the point that 
I thought about not teaching my second one to talk because he was such a talker. (laughs) But it's so important. And I think we don't always think about it. And I think a lot of people maybe have not been taught, if you will, have not been exposed to the importance of talking Mm -hmm. to our children when they're very, very young to build that knowledge base and build that language. And and that's also the reason why they talk about reading to your children and how important that is. And uh, low income children from low income families really struggle. And they're there's a statistic that's staggering that they hear 30 million fewer words than their peers prior to coming to kindergarten. So that's why they can struggle with uh, reading, struggle with um, um, maybe even speaking. You yes, know, their vocabulary time. will be impacted by that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, is there also, can there be any structural issues with the brain that can cause um, issues with um, being able to read? Well, sometimes the brain isn't activated. Um, It's not damaged. Mm -hmm. It just there's certain parts of the brain that we need activated for reading. Mm -hmm. Uh, One is the area that connects letters and sounds. Um, Part of it's that that sound area, the phonemic area. It's it's actually housed right over your left ear, and or right behind it, I guess. And um, so. That actually is where we build the sounds of the English as we're developing that in infancy and toddlerhood. And um, so, and then the frontal part of the brain that kind of brings it all together and makes sense of it. So if those areas aren't activated for whatever reason, lack of language exposure, ear infections, um, just maybe other genetic reasons, um, then it's going to have an impact. You know, being in a noisy environment will impact it. Mm -hmm. If you're a child who lives in a very noisy area by train tracks, for example, or something like Mm -hmm. that, that's going to impact how well you hear what's going on in your environment. And that translates into how clearly those pathways are developed in the brain. That's so fascinating. Um, My son did not speak until he was almost three o'clock three o'clock <laughs> three o'clock he told he's three years old um he was kind of he would speak gibberish but mm-hmm. nobody could understand what he was saying and the first thing they did was they tested his ears to see if he was hearing um correctly or had any issues there he did not so uh, we had to do some more troubleshooting at that point um kids that have these risk factors they either um come from um, low-income neighborhoods or they've got some sort of um, genetic um, issue, do, can they gain proficiency on schedule if they're not taught differently? Do they have to be taught differently than their peers? Well, you know, current research is showing that kids who struggle need 10 to 30 times the amount of practice that typically developing kids do. Mm-hmm. So we've got to bump up that practice. Um, the rehearsal is so important to build those pathways. You know, you think about anything that you do, playing the piano, if you're an athlete, you know, Michael Jordan and his free throws. He didn't get that way. He didn't develop that skill by thinking about it. Right. He did it by practicing over and over and over on a regular basis. And that's really, you know, one of the fundamental things of the fast forward programs is that it provides that practice, that intensive practice that makes sure the kids are getting the right kind of practice, immediate reinforcement. 
Um, you know, as we tend in schools sometimes to give kids a task to do, an assignment, and then we don't grade the papers. I've been a teacher, I know, <laughs> it, you know, you, you don't have time immediately to grade the paper and hand it back to the child and give them feedback. Mm -hmm. But that really is so important for the brain to know, yes, that's right, no, that's not right. Mm -hmm. Here's what you need to do. We need to give kids that feedback immediately so the brain will set it, Make if you pathways. will. Make the pathways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know with, um, fast forward, you guys talk a lot about neuroplasticity and what's happening in the brain. What is exactly happening in the brain and how can this knowledge help struggling students? So with neuroplasticity, that's just the principle that the brain can change under the right conditions. You know, when I was in school, they pretty much told us that by the time you get to elementary school, your brain's set and you can't learn things differently. And now we know that's not true. You can change the way the brain learns at any age, which is good news for <laughs> all of us. And so we really need to focus on the principles of how you do that. And one of those is that intensive practice, that you're getting the rehearsal that the brain needs to really be able to cement those skills in place. And I think today we have a tendency to, oh, we don't want to do a drill and kill. We don't want to do a lot of repetition because it bores the kids. Well, unfortunately, that's the way the brain that's works. What works. Mm -hmm. And um, one of my colleagues always says the brain is an experience driven organ. You've got to practice for it to make a difference. So you need that intensive practice for those struggling kids. You need to be able to uh, motivate them to stay engaged. So it's got to be something that's not just dry and dull necessarily, even though repetition is not typically fun. But try to bring in things to keep them engaged and motivated because that's what's going to keep them paying attention and focused on what they need to do. Because if we can't keep their attention, then the odds of them retaining the information is just not very great. So is motivation just about we want to keep their attention or is there something that happens in the brain when you learn something and then you are motivated? Both. Um, we want to keep their attention because we've got to keep them engaged. But also, um, there's the challenge and feedback piece. You know, if I uh, have enough challenge to keep me engaged and keep me motivated to keep trying, then I'm going to keep working at it and try to achieve that success. If it's too hard, then I tend to get bored and want to quit or frustrated and want to quit. So it's kind of considered the 80-20 principle of learning. 80% comfort, things I know and I can do well, 20% challenge to keep me engaged, keep me motivated, and keep me wanting to be successful. We talked a little bit about this, um, but what variables of neuroscience, and I'm really just getting this off your website, really on a <laughs> show, are effective for helping struggling readers. I know there are four of them. So one of them is the um, the in the motivation, mm -hmm. the, the piece of um, that really keeping them engaged. But also there's that 
repetition piece, mm -hmm. keeping them intensively working on the skills they need to focus on to really develop that skill. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's like doing sit-ups. You know, if I do three sit-ups today and then wait two weeks before I do another one, I'm not going to ever get any results. Mm -hmm. It's that consistency and that repetition that makes such a difference. Another thing that's really important um, in, in our view is the adaptivity piece that uh, the program or the task will adjust according to the student's ability level. Okay. So that brings in that 80-20 ratio again. And so it's going to, if, for example, in some of the fast forward exercises, if I get three right in a row, it's going to bump it up and make it just a little bit harder for me. Mm -hmm. If I make a mistake, it's going to drop it down and make it just a little bit easier to constantly adjust and keep me in that comfort zone of where I learn the very best, because that's where I'm going to stay engaged the most and where I'm going to benefit the most from what's going on. So being able to adapt and adjust to keep it individualized for each student is so important. Um, because if I come in with a cold today, I'm going to have to have some adjustment because I'm not going to perceive the sounds, for example, that I need to perceive clearly. So if it adjusts to me, then it's going to build me back up. Yeah. And also, if it's too hard, then you are you could get frustrated and, and want to stop. Or yes. if it's too easy, <laughs> you yes. could get frustrated and want to stop. Exactly. That's it. It's got to keep me just intrigued enough, just challenged enough that I want to keep going. And then it brings in that fourth concept, the timely reward. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it in our programs they get, you know, points and they get little animations. And um, even as an adult, I can tell you they're engaging and I like to see the little <laughs> characters do those things. And, and I like to see my feeder meter build up and, and all that. And the things that I didn't really expect myself to get engaged with mm -hmm. um, are very rewarding. But it's, again, that thing with the brain, immediate reinforcement, letting me know I did it right. You know, way to go. That's the right response. Remember that one because you're going to need it again. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. What are the early childhood signs that we as parents can recognize to for that are kind of foreshadowing that our child could be a struggling reader? Well, as you mentioned with your son, the delayed talking. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes that's just because it's the fourth child and everybody's talking for him or her. <laughs> and so they just sit back and let everybody do it. Why yeah, not? Right. You know, um, but if your child is not talking or you notice they're really not talking clearly, like you said, gibberish, or uh, they're pretty far off base, of pronouncing words. And I'm not talking about wabbit for rabbit. That's very typical. Mm -hmm. um, the R sound doesn't develop until about age five or six. So that's okay. not unusual. Um, but if they just aren't speaking clearly and you tell them what the correct sound is and they still don't get it, mm -hmm. um, you know, there's just that kind of delayed reaction they're not talking maybe as much as their siblings or other children their age right. that can be one sign um also things like if they're uh, you're 
doing rhyming things. Maybe there are three or four and you're playing little rhyming games and they just can't figure it out. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think we've kind of gotten away from nursery rhymes. Um, I know when I was growing up, my mom did a lot of nursery rhymes with me. I did it with my kids. It's really an important thing for parents to do with those young children because rhyming is an important piece of learning to read. And I know that that seems kind of odd, but if you think about it, in the early years, um, you know, when your kids were coming home with those first spelling words, they were probably a lot of word families, things like bat, sat, cat, fat, rat. So they had that A-T that was the same and just changed that initial consonant. So we practice word families, which rhyme, to help our kids build that automaticity in reading. And so those kinds of things are really important. If I see a child not talking much, not articulating correctly, I'm not figuring out um, little silly things they should be able to understand, little games and, you know, word plays and those kinds of things, then I'm going to pay attention to it. Mm -hmm. I had a friend years ago who called me because her son was not articulating well and tend to use the wrong letter sounds or miss letter sounds in words. And she said her husband was like, oh, don't worry about it. It's fine. And I said, you know what, mom, if you're worried about it, go have his hearing tested because there's a reason you're concerned. Now, she was a teacher. She was an excellent teacher. And um, but new mom. And so she took him to the doctor, and sure enough, he had hearing loss. Yeah. I always say there's something about that mama gut yep. that you got to listen to. That's right. Because we have this intuition that somehow um, lets us know. And I, I'm, I've said before on our show that, you know, I thought that my middle child had autism from a long time. And I couldn't get anybody to validate that that was what was wrong with him. But sure enough, finally, when he was seven and a half, I think he was diagnosed with autism. Yeah, and I understand that, you know, we're really hesitant to put a, a diagnose, diagnosis like that on a young child. Um, and so I appreciate that. But the flip side is the sooner you know, the sooner, sooner you, you can, can get help. Get help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Let me ask you this. I saw last night a, on Facebook, a friend of mine um, posted something and it made me think about this show. And I said, let me ask Corey when I come on. She said, teacher friends, please help. My son is three, turning four in July, and still cannot recognize his letters. He can say his alphabets, but cannot recognize them. I work with him, but I'm starting to get frustrated and worried. Could that possibly be, and now it's just me talking, (laughs) could that possibly be um, a sign of future struggles with reading? You know, at three to four, I'm really not going to worry about Mm. letters. Mm -hmm. Um, I think... (laughs) Unfortunately, today, um, it's all about teaching my baby to read. Yes. And, and you know, doing flashcards with infants. They are not developmentally ready to do flashcards. Mm-hmm. And I know there are people who swear their children at, you know, infancy learn to read. Okay, great. <laughs> but the vast majority of children are not developmentally ready to read until they're anywhere from six to eight, really. Mm. And so I am not going to worry about a three-year-old who does not know his letters. 
I'm not even going to be pushing letters on a three-year-old unless maybe it's just a case of like, again, with my son, he had his favorite book that we would read every day. And it was, it wasn't really stories. It was pictures of words and different words. And it became mind numbing for me. So out of desperation, I started saying the letters along with the color names and he learned his letters. Mm -hmm. So if it's that way, they just kind of pick it up by osmosis. Great. They're, they're prepared. They're ready for that. But if they're not ready, then I would not push it. I would talk to them. I would read to them. I would just celebrate language and being silly stories and, and making it fun because if you start worrying about it, they're going to pick up on that. Yep. And then it's going to build to a level of stress for both mm -hmm. of you that neither one of you need at that point in life. Yes. And, um, you know, if you think about these school school these countries that have these amazing um, school districts like Finland and Singapore, they don't even have to start going to school until they're six and six or seven. And then when they do, it's mostly play. It's play. Yeah. Because that's how kids learn. Mm -hmm. You know, you give kids blocks and different things like that. They're going to use their creative imagination and build things. And, and it's so much more developmentally appropriate than sitting at a desk or even sitting on the floor, you know, in a circle reading. Now, I know schools don't give teachers much choice in that. And I get that. But um, man, when they're at home, let them play. Let them be kids. And if you put some of that stuff out there, they may incorporate those things. Mm -hmm. And and if they've got the skills and they're ready for it, they will. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's take a quick break to say that if you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear for you, from you. Give us a call at 214-444-5575. And you can also find us, um, if you're listening, on Facebook at Noggin Foundation. And uh, drop us a line there on our Facebook Live. So how can we strengthen? Um, so I know that, you know, we've talked a little bit about auditory and listening skills and stuff like that. How can we strengthen our kids listening skills? Well, I think one of the things, and, and maybe this was just my kids, um, but in our instant world that we live in today, um, and, and not only instant, but animated and, you know, things jumping through hoops for us all the times mm -hmm. and everything. Um, kids don't always learn how to pay attention. Mm -hmm. um, I remember when my kids were older, probably, I don't know, upper elementary, middle school, that kind of thing. I started getting a lot of, I'd say something and they'd go, huh? <laughs> huh? Huh? And I started thinking, okay, I don't think either one of my kids have a hearing loss all of a sudden. And I, I realized I was training that because I was constantly repeating myself. They'd say, huh? And I would answer and say it again. And so I had, you know, they had trained me to just keep repeating it until they were ready to listen and engage. So Wait, Corey, stop. <laughs> I need to pause and think about that because I know I do that. And I get that all do. the time from my kids. We, it's an automatic thing. They go, huh? And we repeat, huh? We repeat. I stopped it. I and I would say, what did I just say? And nine times out of 10, they could always tell me. <gasps> stop. So I think we have to stop 
feeding that repetition mode for them and make them listen the first time. Um, I used to laugh telling people about fast forward. They would click the button and they had to listen the first time because if they didn't, they just got it wrong and they had to go on. Hmm. And it's, you know, it's like, it's a radical concept, (laughs) but they have to listen the first time. Wow. And I think that's something that probably both at home and at school, we get in a bad habit as adults of just refeeding them the information. And you think about it when they're on a game or something like that, they can just hit replay. Yeah. And sometimes it's a beneficial, sometimes it's a good thing and they need it. But I'm betting a lot of the time, if we just stopped feeding that and made them listen the first time, that would be really beneficial to them getting in that habit of really listening and responding. Um, Then there's other things that we can do, um, you know, playing some games. I'm going to say a word, you say a word that rhymes and doing those kinds of things. Um, it worth working memory, building that we can do those. I don't know if you ever play those games where you say, I'm going on a cramp- camping trip and I'm going to take an apple. Mm-hmm. And then the next person says, I'm going to take an apple and a banana. You have to do alphabet in the order of the alphabet. Oh, And so the kids go around and they... As you go, you have to say everything that was said before. Now, the letters of the alphabet helped Q. It's kind of a mnemonic sort of thing to help kids remember, okay, I've got to remember A, B, C, D, E, F, G before it gets to my H word. Um, But you can imagine by the time you get to Z, that kiddo's got a lot that they have to be able to remember. Yeah. Now, they're not going to be able to do that right off the bat. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, it's something that's built over time. You can do it with uh, numerals. You can do it with words. Um, just anything that's going to help make them tax that working memory and their attention both at the same time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's good. Uh, but you blew my mind with the repetition <laughs> thing to make them listen the first time. Because I was thinking, you know, audio books or podcasts. <laughs> That's much better. That's a much better answer. Don't keep repeating yourself. And that'll help you stay a little more sane. Yes. <laughs> As a parent. And it, and it puts some of the onus on them. Uh-huh. You know, you're responsible for listening and understanding when you're receiving directions, whether mm-hmm. it's at home or at school or at work. You know, I mean, when I go to work, my boss doesn't expect to repeat things to me 25 times Mm. or send me 15 emails reminding me to do something. So why not start it at five Mm. instead of waiting until they're 25 and and then fired? Yeah. (laughs) And then they're learning the hard way. (laughs) So parents take, if you take nothing else from this podcast today, (laughs) adopt the, what did I just say? (laughs) Phrase. (laughs) Um, so if intervention is not given, okay, well, we, we've already talked about this really, um, that that you, you will not grow out of not gaining proficiency because when I was researching for this episode, I thought, well, you don't really encounter adults who can't read well, but then I came across the statistics of just the low proficiency in reading that we see here in the United States. So there has to be some sort of intervention. Yeah, we encounter adults who've learned to compensate or cover. Compensate, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, 
what do adults look like when they can't read well? How does that work? It's- um, you know, I think it happens different ways. I think sometimes somebody will say, hey, I don't have my glasses. Oh. Can you read this for me? Mm-hmm. Um, that's one strategy. Um, they, You know, there are a lot of programs now that uh, you can have the text read to that's you true. on a computer. So mm-hmm. if they have that option available to them. Um, I know that in many schools, especially in a situation where maybe it's second language learners, mm-hmm. Um, then the children will read the notes to the parents if the children are proficient mm-hmm. and become the interpreters, so okay. to speak. Um, but it can also apply even if they're not second language learners, if the parents are not literate, where the kids read to them. Mm-hmm. And so there's just ways, you know, it's just it's just ways that you cope. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just like when my daughter was at school and she was taking Spanish in college and she hadn't had it for two years and the last two years of high school, you know, the teacher gave instructions in Spanish and she said, she looked around, saw everybody get up moving and she asked somebody, oh, are we supposed to get into small groups? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Does gender impact the speed at which you gain proficiency at all? I think it can in some cases. I think, you know, traditionally we've thought that boys tend to develop the reading skills a little bit later than Mm -hmm. girls. Um, Typically, I think because girls have a tendency to be more verbal, not always, um, but in some cases they tend to be more verbal. So they pick up on those things more easily. Right. You know, the better the language foundation, the stronger the reader most typically. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's going to impact things. Um, I have a friend whose grandson wasn't reading in kindergarten and first grade. And she was, she was very, very concerned and uh, was even, they were talking about dyslexia and all these kind of things. And I kept saying, wait until he's eight, give him a chance until he's eight, let him get to eight. And sure enough, I just talked to her last week, and uh, he turned nine in June, I guess it is, and she said he's reading great. He's doing fine. You know, that is exactly what happened with us. So my middle child, who's now nine, last year, um, he, was it last year? It might have been last year. Um, He was diagnosed with specific learning disorder in the area of reading. And then um, I that was at his school. And um, then I had him tested for some other things. We found out about autism and whatnot. And the, the diagnostician said, at his age, I never would have diagnosed him with that because he's a boy, is he's what she boy. said. Yep. And lo and behold, the summer after the year that he was, um, like a couple months later, he was reading, not perfectly, but, you know, well he was reading well and it just it it turned on like a switch yeah and it was it was bizarre and that was exactly what the the diagnostician said she was like somehow it just clicks sometimes with boys and that is it and he was eight yeah and Mm -hmm. it's i think it goes back to that developmentally appropriate Uh thing too that the the brain in some situations is just not mature enough just not ready Mm -hmm. and you think i mean i hate to be stereotypical but for a lot of little boys, reading and talking is the last thing they're concerned about. Right. You know, they want to do, they want to play, they want to act out and not in a negative way, but, you know, 
character acting out, cowboys, Indians, that kind of stuff. And so, you know, I'll get to that other stuff later. And they do. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think also I feel in some cases it's the same thing with attention deficit disorder. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't want to sit still. So everybody thinks, oh, they have ADD. Well, sometimes they're just little squirmy boys, <laughs> and sometimes they're just little squirmy girls, yeah. you know. And so I think you have to be – and I'm not saying, you know, if they're off the charts, can't focus, can't do their work, that kind of thing. That's a totally different situation. But if it's just a little bit and um, they're able to cope and do things – I, I like to wait and give them some time to work it out on their own. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Exactly. How do you know the difference between a child who's just struggling to read and a child who has a learning dyslexia or learning disorder or dyslexia or something like that? Yeah, that's that is kind of tricky. And, um, you know, you mentioned your diagnostician. Typically, if it gets to the point of testing kids, um, to determine whether it's a learning disability or not. Um, we historically, I know some schools have other options now, but historically we used what was called the discrepancy rule, which means that, you know, a standard deviation, and here I'm getting all technical, but a 15-point spread between your IQ and how well you perform in reading, math, something else like that, is within reason. If it's more than that, then that's a red flag. There could be a disability. And so if it was 16 points or more, then we said, okay, we've moved into the learning disability category now. And so as a diagnostician, when I tested kids, say their IQ was 100, if they performed at, say, 82 on their reading, then I could classify them as needing special services and needing additional help. Eating testing for special services or actually there you see a problem in? Well, if I was testing them, there already had been a problem. Oh, okay. Because I, you know, diagnosticians can't test until the teacher has oh, documented okay. that gotcha. there's some issues going on. The parents agree to testing and then you can do the testing to see if there's an issue. Yeah. Um, there were times that I had kids that I didn't get that 16 point spread. And um, it didn't mean they weren't struggling. It could be, again, developmentally, they weren't ready yet, or they had some other issues that um, impacted their ability to learn effectively. Now, if the school is not noticing, what are things that I would be noticing that are going to be concerned as a parent? Because sometimes the, the, you know, the schools are... There's a lot of kids in classrooms and, mm -hmm. you know, there's they can't always catch people fall through the cracks sometimes. They unfortunately. do. They do. I think one thing that's really helpful is that if you can get an idea of what typical reading at your, your child's ability level sounds like, um, having them read out loud, because um, I, I remember I'd have parents come in and go, my kid reads just fine. N no. They didn't, they were significantly below level, but the parents didn't know what typical was. Yes. Um, so if there's a way to figure out, and there may be some um, 
things you could go to online to hear reading samples of different age levels. First, educate yourself on what typical is for that child's grade level. I think that's the first thing to consider. And then have your child read out loud to you and see, you know, is their pacing pretty appropriate? Mm -hmm. Can they decode those words? Is it all just a wash? They're they're just staring at the page and they don't know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, in kindergarten, I'm not going to sweat too much about if they're not figuring it out. Um, as far as really reading efficiently. Um, if they're not able to rhyme again, those kinds of plays on words, word family games, those kind of things, then that's going to make me wonder, okay, do we need to do something? Um, another thing I'll tell you is that schools sometimes, and, and it's a little different now because of all the dyslexia legislation across the country, um, but Historically, I would say teachers tend to try to give kids some time and um, not immediately in kindergarten or first grade start talking, oh, they need special help um, because we you're trying to be cautious and give them time to mature. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, though, most schools now or if all schools really should have a program called response to intervention. So if they're not responding, if they're not doing what their peers are doing grade level wise in reading or math, um, then that teacher is going to probably want to put them in a response to intervention program where they're going to have an intervention program that they'll do and they'll really monitor how the child's responding to that intervention. If they don't over a certain time period, they'll switch to a different one uh, because they know that the quicker you get kids up to speed, the more effective it's going to be. We don't and um, we don't want them to continue to drag third grade and beyond. Okay. And I'm going to ask you about third grade again in a second here. Um, so response to intervention, just for clarity, is kind of the step before we put something specific in play like a, um, an uh, IEP mm-hmm. or um, some sort of special accommodations. This is something that the parents can do, and the parents, the teachers can do in the classroom. Yes. Um, sometimes it's in the classroom. Sometimes they'll do a pull-out program. Okay. And they tend to call it RTI for response to intervention. Mm-hmm. And so they uh, they have it set up. It's it's school-wide. Um, you know, they, they have that in place, especially at the elementary and I would say middle school level too, to try to make sure we get these kids as quickly and effectively as possible. And um, so that is what would come before a referral for special ed Mm -hmm. should be. Mm -hmm. Um, If, you know, if you're listening and you have uh, concerns about um, dyslexia, we did do a dyslexia special a couple of weeks ago. So I encourage you to go to schooldazedshow.com or anywhere that you listen to your podcast and um, listen to that. We shared some great information. And also upcoming in March, we have um, a show about learning disabilities in general. Can you tell me, I still don't understand this, um, what is specific learning disorder uh, disorder in the area of reading? I still don't understand what that is. Well, it's kind of a new thing. It's an umbrella term. Um, We used to focus more on the different aspects of reading issues, and now that's um, been a a new thing created to be sort of a a 
overall umbrella for the reading issues. So it could be that a child has word reading accuracy issues. It could be, you know, just being able to decode and call the words. Um, it could be fluency, which is the reading rate. And I'm not talking about speed here. I'm talking about being able to read with, you know, a good, good pace where it makes sense and with um, expression, you know, pausing at periods, that kind of thing. So a raising inflection, at, you know, with a question mark, just so it, it helps make sense when you read, and which leads us to the third part comprehension. And so it could, a child could have problems with all three of those things, or they could just have an issue with one or two. So it's just kind of an umbrella term meaning that this child has some sort of reading issues and um, then it could be any or all of the different categories, if you will. Yeah. What causes comprehension problems? I think sometimes it's fluency. You know, if a child can't read effectively enough, uh, smoothly enough, if you will, um, it's hard to understand. If you're having to read word by word, it's hard to get to the point that it makes sense. Or if you're spending so much of your energy and time on word attack and breaking the words down, then you don't get any meaning out of that. You're mm -hmm. just calling words. Mm -hmm. I remember having kids in my classes when I was teaching special ed and I'd have them read a paragraph to me and then I'd ask a question and they'd look at me like I had lost my mind. It's like, are you kidding me? I just got through all those words and now you want me to understand it too? I mean, so I think that, that fluency fluency and comprehension are, are causally tied closely. And one leads to the other. Fluency leads to comprehension. And so building fluency, getting kids to practice reading out loud, the National Reading Panel back in 2000 proved that reading out loud is where we really develop fluency. So we've got to get kids reading out loud. Now, if I'm a poor reader, that's probably the last thing on earth I'm going to want to do. I'll be honest with you. And so the, the reading in a group is going to be torture for those kids. Um, but reading one-on-one -on -one and, you know, get easier texts that they're comfortable with. Get joke books, get comic books, get something that they're going to really want to read. And that's appropriate for their ability level so they can start practicing and you can build it up. And part of Fast Forward is Reading Assistant Plus, where they read out loud into the computer. They have a headset with a microphone. And so they're all cool and it records it. It plays it back so they can hear themselves read. And it really helps build that vocabulary, fluency, and comprehension. Because you, I just don't see how you can get comprehension if you don't have fluency. That's why kids sometimes, if you read the story to them, they're great. They've yeah. got it. Yeah. But if they have to read it on their own, it's a toss-up. And I think also if you're missing words, if you have to skip words, then yes. you can't make a complete thought. Yes. Yeah, if you don't know what some of the words are. Yeah. And there could be other things, you know, there, I think sometimes kids, even if they read pretty well, fluently, they're, they're so focused on the word calling and the, the reading part of it that they're not really clicking into the understanding at the same time. Right, right. Let me ask you, is 
your ability to read out loud or your inability, I guess, is that always going to be indicative of your level of reading? Can you read in your brain well and not read out loud well? Is that possible? Um, I think it would depend on the circumstance. I mean, I'm thinking of little ones or or anybody at any age who's incredibly shy Mm -hmm. and reading, speaking or reading out loud is torture. Yeah. You know, no, I'm probably not going to do a very good job, even though I might read okay. Um, if it's if they're that shy or insecure about reading out loud. Um, but I think in in many, many cases, reading out loud is probably a pretty good indicator. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Many school districts, and you mentioned this a little bit back, a little a little while back, many school districts have set a goal of reading proficiency of their students by the age or by third grade. What is the importance of that benchmark? Well, there's a couple of things. Third grade is kind of a pivotal year in school. Um, prior to third grade, we we tend to refer to the phrase at learning to read, where they're trying to figure it all out. They're getting the decoding. They're getting the fluency, building all those skills. Third into fourth grade, we're transitioning from learning to read to reading to learn. I've got to be able to read it and understand it and do it on my own. And, um, you know, we never really stop some aspects of decoding because we're always going to come across words we don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the really being able to do that piece independently and gain knowledge and information from reading on my own is really important. And so that's a third to fourth grade skill. And it kind of transitions in third grade. Mm-hmm. And also, a lot of research has shown that if I'm not proficient by third grade, it is a very strong probability that I will be less proficient even by eighth and ninth grade. Less proficient than less you proficient are because in- the work's getting harder. Oh, okay. Yeah, it sounds like. Wait a minute. If I was at a a forty percent level in third grade, you know, but it sometimes increases for students wow. because. The work doesn't stay at third grade level. Mm-hmm. It's going to increasingly get more difficult. So if I don't improve my skills along with it, then I'm going to fall further behind. That is so interesting. And this really explains the statistic that I have here. The American Educational Research Association says that if a student can't read on grade level by third grade, um, they're four times more likely to graduate by age 19 than a child who isn't proficient by that time. Because they are losing their level of proficiency as the as the uh, work gets harder. Yeah, that's so interesting. So what kind of things and we talked a little bit about this, but what kind of things can we as parents do to help with proficiency, not just at home, because we're always on the go, we are always, (laughs) I'm always in my minivan. So what kind of things can I do on the go and at home to help um, my child become more proficient? Well, I think about things that, you know, my parents did in the car when I was growing up, you know, playing I spy and um, looking for things, helping kids be observant. And it's also helping them stay focused and on task, because if they're looking for a specific thing, they're having to stay actively engaged and retain that piece of information, which is working on working memory. 
So those are, you know, the, the research shows that struggling kids most often are weak in language, attention, and working memory. So I would say anything that I can do to build those skills. And, you know, with language, that's the great thing. I don't have to be in front of a piece of paper or a book or a computer to talk to my kids. Mm -hmm. So playing word games, you know, that's another thing you can do in the car, Um, you know, or even with the I spy, you know, I spy something blue. Give me three words that start with bull because that's different than b. Yeah. BL is mm-hmm. a little bit different. That's a little trickier. That's good. Um, so things that are going to make them have to be very specific, but also that's fun, you know, or rhyming. It's mm-hmm. always fun to come up with rhyming words. Um, you know, I think back years ago, and you, I'm sure you remember this, that song, Cory Bory, mm-hmm. you know, Banana Banana, banana song, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, Banana song or whatever. That's a great rhyming activity. Mm. And, you know, the kids love it. Um, They love to get engaged and be silly with it and have fun with it and dance it and everything else. Mm -hmm. So those kind of things, anything you have in your repertoire like that or can build in things like that, I think are important. Mm -hmm. Um, I know one thing I did with my, you know, I worked, I've spent most of my career with struggling readers. And one thing I did with some of my kids, I found an app. Um, well, it wasn't an app back then. It was a program, but <laughs> uh, now it would be an app. And um, I could put their names into a story. And so it was, a, I remember the one they loved the most was a very simple story. And it, it had my name in it and it had their names in it. And it would be, you know, Mrs. Arms is coming down the hall and sees Danita and David and DJ running down the hall. No running in the hall. She's, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And they would, I mean, literally be on the floor squealing (laughs) with laughter because their names were in a story. Do you think I had any trouble getting them to read that and practice that Mm -hmm. story? Never. That's awesome. Never. Mm -hmm. And so anything like that, and and I think you have to be careful. There's a lot of... That will let you put your kid's name in, but the text is difficult. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, try to find something that's going to be at their reading level, easy for them to do. Um, or make up stories. You know, you can always, uh, well, that's one thing we used to do with writing, but it's great with language and reading too, is you start out the story and then you pass it to another child. They have to continue the story. Mm-hmm. And then the next one has to continue the story. And anything like that that's going to get them engaged in language, in focusing, in retaining, um, those are just going to be beneficial across the board. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And also, you know, we did a, an episode uh, a while back about fostering a love of reading in a tech-driven society. And one of the things that she talked about was modeling, letting them see you reading and enjoying reading. Um, and another thing she said is make sure that there's books all around that they're accessible age appropriate books that, um, yeah. And we just, we just have them laying out in our house now. I don't know that they grab them nearly as much as I like for them to, um, but just make sure that there's, there's, you know, cool places where they can sit and read, you know, beanbag chairs or, or something where they always know that there's a book that they can pick up. 
Yeah. And I've seen teachers be really creative with that with like um, laundry baskets mm. where they just get cheap laundry baskets and put pillows in there. Um, oh, you and know, they like card- to sit in laundry baskets. My kids do. sit in our laundry baskets and watch TV. <laughs> yes. It's, you know, boxes. That's so um, smart. It just, it doesn't have to be anything fancy. In fact, the more bizarre it is, the more the kids probably would get into it. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, just get a big cardboard box and put pillows in it. And everybody has those because of Amazon.com. Yes. (laughs) You always have an empty box in the house. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This was fabulous. This is really good information. And so so thank you for your time. Thank you. We are unfortunately out of time, but uh, we always want to let our listeners know uh, what's going on with Noggin Educational Foundation because they are the premier sponsor of School Dazed. So our mission is to help close the achievement achievement gap for economically disadvantaged children by improving educational opportunities for students, supporting families, and encouraging excellence and innovation in the classroom. School Dazed is part of our commitment to support families by providing access to experts who offer information and resources regarding all topics that impact education. If you love this program, please consider donating to Noggin. Your gift will be tax deductible. Head to our website, schooldazedshow.com and give today. Also, we are now taking applications for our free tutoring program. Each student receives 12 in-home private sessions with a teacher. We also offer online tutoring if you happen to not be in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. Students must qualify for the free or reduced program lunch program at school. Space is limited. For more information, head to our website, nogginfoundation.org, that's N-O-G-G-I-N, and click on the free tutoring icon. And lastly, if you'd like for your kid to be one of our kid casters, email me at info at schooldazedshow.com. Next week, I will sit down with Alicia Chenever, who is an academic interventionist at Cedar Hill ISD and author of a book for kids called Testing Jitters. Also joining us will be friend of the show the, uh, and licensed professional, professional counselor, April Wooldridge. We'll talk about calming test anxiety. So don't forget to share that with your parents, friends. And also head to our website, schooldazedshow.com for more information about all that we're doing and any resources that we mention here on School Days. And remember, you don't ever have to miss a show. Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, and pretty much anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Noggin Foundation. That's N-O-G-G-I-N. And last but not least, we always want to end our show by saying that David and I are parenting by grace. We depend on God to give us the strength that we need to help our kids grow into flourishing adults. And if you would like to know more about that, please feel free to email me at info at schooldazedshow.com. Have a great week. School Dazed is sponsored by Noggin Educational Foundation. At Noggin, we provide free educational resources to students from low-income families and support to their parents like the preceding broadcast. School Dazed is made possible by the generosity of listeners just like you. 
please consider donating to Noggin at Noggin, N-O-G-G-I-N, foundation.org.